Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, peace or grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, I do pray that this, this evening as we get into your word, Lord, just and understand your mission for the church. The same as your mission was for Paul, Lord, because it's, it was Jesus' mission, um, which is to declare your glory, to declare his own glory. I pray that we would be those who receive your word with thanksgiving, who are transformed by it, and Lord, who uh, respond in trust and obedience and take your word to the nations that all peoples might know that you are Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, when an organization gets off mission, it tends to do all sorts of dumb things and unproductive things. But when a church gets off mission, it really ceases to be a church and starts to become something else. It becomes a nice place for your family to learn good values. Or it becomes a great place to make friends you enjoy hanging out with or just to network. Or it becomes a place to help save your marriage or to heal after a divorce. Or it becomes a place that offers alternative activities that are safer and more moral than what the world offers. It becomes a place for social action on behalf of the poor. It becomes a place to hear good lessons on how God can improve your life and business or just generally make you more happy. Or it becomes a place for political action on behalf of a particular party or cause. Or it becomes a place where we can assuage any guilt we might feel by participating in our weekly religious duty. In other words, when the church gives off mission, it becomes many things, some of which are good, but that are not the central purpose of the church. However, when the church is off mission, it does not, listen, it does not become a place where above all else, Jesus Christ is glorified and delighted in his Lord. It does not become a place where men and women are brought to joyful faith and repentance by the proclamation of the glory of Christ and where those men and women are challenged to develop in their love for the glory of Christ and then are challenged to declare the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. That's what it does not become when it's off mission. Instead, it becomes a place where, it, where, as it has in America, where we are here for many reasons, and seeing his name declared in all the nations is just one of them. It's one of the many. But it's not central. If it were central, listen, then it would not be true that there's only one missionary. One missionary sent out per every 7.5 churches in America. Did you 
hear that? Current statistic, one missionary per every 7.5 churches in America are sent out if proclaiming the glory of Christ in all nations, among all peoples, was our central purpose, that would not be the case in the church in America. Where has our missionary zeal gone? Where's it gone? When the church ceases to proclaim the word of God for the glory of God as its primary purpose, then the mission of God, that his name be proclaimed in all the earth, is diminished. The other night I was having dinner and I was asked um, by the people we were having dinner with what motivated me to want to plant a church. Now, what motivated you, Chad, to want to plant a church? And it gave me a chance to reminisce about a turning point in my life and ministry um, and in my understanding, really, of the mission of the church. About a year into my time as youth pastor, I read Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And... I heard this statement that he made that, that really rocked me and just turned my whole paradigm upside down and said this, missions exist where worship does not. The reason we do missions is because not every name, or excuse me, not every knee is bowing, not every tongue conf- is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Missions is ultimately an exercise in taking the worship of Christ to the nations. In other words, the proper motivation for all missions is not first the helping of man. It is first the glory of Christ. John Stott made this comment. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are are alienated and perishing, as strong as that incentive is, but rather zeal, burning, passionate zeal for the glory of Christ. I came to understand the implications for a mission that is radically God-centered carry into every area of ministry, not just missions. Our whole mission as a church is to bring glory to Christ. And to bring that glory or to declare that glory to all peoples. This affects the way we pray. It affects the way we preach. It affects the way we live. It affects the way we serve. It affects the way we respond to difficult circumstances. It affects the way we spend our money. It affects the way we love our spouse. It affects the way we parent. And it affects the way we program our ministries. It affects it all. When that happened to me, when I was reading that and uh, book and kind of flipped my whole world upside down in the way I saw ministry, at that point in my life, my mission became to adopt really what was the mission that John Piper had stated was his and that he believed was elicited from the scripture. And I modified it a bit in the way it's stated, but my mission became to declare the glory of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And it's the mission of this church. And I believe it's the driving mission of Paul's ministry. And that's what I want to show you. Last week, I provided you with five affirmations of Christ as the focus. Provided with five affirmations of Christ as the focus of our mission. 
I said, I said these things, and I covered three of them last week. One, Christ is the Lord of his church. He's the Lord of his church or the head of his church. Second, Christ is the source of grace that empowers us for service. Christ is the source of grace that empowers us for service. Third, Christ is the Savior and Lord that we obediently trust. Those are the three affirmations we covered last week. This week, we're going to cover the last two affirmations about Christ as a central focus of our ministry or our mission. The fourth one is this that we're going to cover. The two today, we'll cover the fourth and fifth. The fourth one is this. Christ's lordship is to be declared in all nations. And fifth, Christ's glory is the goal of our ministry. So fourth, Christ's lordship is to be declared in all nations. And fifth, Christ's glory is the goal of our ministry. Today I want to talk about those last two affirmations. First, that Christ's lordship is to be declared in all nations. And second, that his glory is the goal of our ministry. Last week, I told you that Paul makes it very clear in this section that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things, including his body, the church. Lord over all things, including his body, the church. Out of Paul's conviction that Jesus is both Savior and Lord springs Paul's purpose in bringing the obedience of faith to all nations for the sake of his name. And there are really two facets of this purpose I want you to understand. And, and that's what, this is what they are. First, to, to obediently trust Christ as Savior and Lord is the proper response to the gospel. To obediently trust Christ as Savior and Lord is the proper response to the gospel. And this is kind of under the first point that Christ's Lordship is declared under all nations. Two facets to it. First, that Christ, to trust Christ as Savior and Lord is the proper response to the gospel. God commands us to believe the gospel. Paul states in verse 5, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And last week I talked about the fact that I believe the obedience of faith is the obedience that consists in faith. In other words, the obedience is the proper response to the gospel. God commands you to believe. It's a command. It's in the form of an imperative in the Greek. It's a command. You must believe. Repent and believe. And to be obedient is to believe. That is the obedience of faith. God commands us to believe the gospel. He commands us to believe that there is salvation found in no other name but Jesus Christ. He commands us to submit ourselves in faith. In fact, I look, when I looked at Romans 10, I showed you not only that he commands us to submit ourselves in faith, but that he says that not all have obeyed the gospel. To believe in Christ as Savior and Lord is obedience. It is. To not believe in, in him as Savior or Lord is disobedience. You might call this the gospel imperative. You know what I mean when I use the word imperative? An imperative is a command. You might call this the gospel imperative or the gospel command. God commands men everywhere to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And to do otherwise is disobedience. Because it is disobedience to not submit yourself to the word of God. And the reason that you disobey is because you do not trust. That's why 
Paul has put together this phrase, the obedience of faith. So since we went over that last week, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I want to turn to the second part, the second facet of this, which is the scope of the gospel imperative. The scope of the gospel imperative or command is universal. It's universal in its scope. Uh, The question arises whether Paul's mission is only to the Gentiles or whether it's to all people groups. Because in verse 5, he says, We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And the question is, in Greek, that word is ethne. And the question is, does that mean Gentiles? Or does that mean nations or peoples? What does that mean? Some argue that it is Gentiles as opposed to Jews. It's Paul's mission is only to non-Jews, is what some argue. And the reason they say that is because God called Paul expressly to take the gospel to the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. They continue with this by pointing out that in Romans 11.13 and Romans 15.15-16, Paul makes two statements about his mission among the Jews. Listen, in Romans 11.13 he says this, excuse me, among the Gentiles, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles as opposed to the Jews. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Here that he makes that statement. And in Romans 15, verses 15 and 16, Paul makes this statement. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace of God given me, excuse me, the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So people make the argument that Paul's only talking about the Gentiles. However, that's not the view I take. I take the view that here, Paul is speaking of all nations. Speaking of all peoples. Including the Jews. Not just the Gentiles here. And I do so for four reasons. Right? Here are the four reasons why I think the scope of the gospel is universal here. First, the, this is a general introduction to the whole letter to the church at Rome. It's a general introduction to the whole letter to the church at Rome. A letter in which he is clearly writing both to Gentiles and to Jews. Writing to both. Which he includes as those whom he wants to bring the gospel to. If you look in verse 6, following verse 5, among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Hear that? Including you. And you, in this letter is not just Gentiles. It is Gentiles and Jews. If you look at verse 16, in the same introductory section to the letter, well, actually, we're getting into the theme statement, but in the same early part of the letter, he says this in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or the Gentile. He universalizes his presentation of the gospel in 1, 18 through 20. Look down at verse 18. He can't be just talking about Gentiles in, in these universal statements. Look in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All men have seen God in the creation. And all men have rejected him. And they are all without excuse. Continues to universalize it in chapter 3. If you go to Romans chapter 3, verse 9... So he talks about the continuing sin of man. He's not just talking about Gentiles. If you look at verse 9. In fact, speaking to the Jews, he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one. It's universal. If you go down to chapter, excuse me, to chapter 3, verse 21, continue down to verse 21, we find out the gospel promise comes to all. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. If you go on to verse 29 of chapter 3, it says this, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So not only is this a general introduction to the letter in which he includes the whole church at Rome, which has Gentiles and Jews in it, but second, it's, he universalizes his presentation of the gospel in this letter. So I think he must be speaking to both groups when he says ethne here, must be talking about nations. Third, Paul's mission was preeminently to the Gentiles, but was always to the Jews also. Always to the Jews also. Preeminently to the Gentiles, but always to the Jews also. In fact, in Acts 26, you don't have to turn here, but in Acts 26, Paul makes this statement, speaking of the vision he had. Jesus says to him, Jesus says to Paul in his vision when he's converted and goes out on his mission, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people. Who's your people? The Jews. And from the Gentiles. Now listen, to whom I'm sending you. It includes both groups there. Your people and the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you. Even the rest of the apostles were sent to the Jews and the Gentiles, were they not? What does the Great Commission say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations. All nations. Their mission was always, all the apostles, not just Paul, all the apostles was always to all nations. Not just Jews specifically and not just Gentiles specifically, although Paul's was preeminently to the Gentiles. Further, Paul clearly states his concern for Jews to believe in Romans 9, 
verse 1, we know that he wanted them to believe because he always went to the synagogues first wherever he showed up. Always went to the synagogues first. In Romans 9, verse 1, he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Listen, Paul was so desperate for the salvation of the Jews, not just the Gentiles, that he uses this phrase, a hypothetical, but he knows it can't happen, but I wish that I myself were cut off just to see them saved. How often do we have that kind of passion for any group of people? For any group of people. Obviously, Paul's mission was clearly for more than just the Gentiles. In 10.1, he says a very similar thing, and I'm not going to turn there now. Finally, the fourth reason is that the end of the letter of Romans, in chapter 16, and if you want to look at that with me, the end of the letter of Romans provides us a bracket around the whole letter, which points to God's grand design of bringing glory to his name through, the bringing, through bringing the nations into the obedience of faith in his son. Now, when I say brackets, I taught my high school students years ago about when I was youth pastor about an inclusio. There's a statement at the beginning and the end of a section that kind of are like bookends. They bracket it and tell you that this is, this is thematic for this whole section. Well, in Romans 1.5, he says he's been given grace through whom I've been given grace and apostleship, or we've been given grace and apostleship to do what? Bring about the obedience of faith in all nations for the sake of his name. Now, look at Romans chapter 16. We can start in verse 25 and read down. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, listen, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul has this grand design. And frankly, it is God's grand design to bring glory to his name by bringing all nations to the obedience of faith in his son. Paul's mission was not, listen, was not, I started to stop using that word, listen. Paul's mission was not a small-minded mission to see one strong local church but a grand mission for the world. Sovereign Grace's church, Sovereign Grace Church's mission is likewise not a mission to only plant this one Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated church. That is not our mission. Our mission at Sovereign Grace Church is to see this as the beginning of a larger mission, to see all men everywhere obediently trust Jesus Christ. We desire to see God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated, missions-mobilizing churches planted all over the world among every 
tribe and tongue and nation. We desire to see these kinds of churches planted all over the world. Why? Because God desires to see these kinds of churches planted all over the world. God is ultimately concerned for his own glory. He wants his own glory above all else. And that leads to our fifth affirmation of Christ as the focus of our mission. The fifth affirmation of Christ as the focus of our mission is this, that Christ's glory is the goal of our ministry. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1 that he wants to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Why? For the sake of his name. Whose name? Well, here we're talking about Jesus Christ our Lord from verse 4b, where he stops and he finishes with Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. When the Bible uses the word name, it's referring to a summation of that person's character or of who that person is. It's very similar or equivalent to saying his glory. To say for the sake of his name is, 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 very, is equivalent to saying for the sake of his glory. Because the glory of God is the display of his characteristics. It's the display of his characteristics. And the name of God is a name that sums up who he is. Or the summation of his characteristics. They're equivalent statements. The glory of God... You, you hear things about the glory of God when it says something like when God shows or when God demonstrates or God displays his character or attributes. It says that all over the text. And when he's doing that, he is showing his glory. He wants us to see his greatness and his majesty and his glory and to worship his name. That's what he wants from us. His whole purpose and all he has done is to show his glory. You know that, right? His whole purpose and all he's done is to show his glory. Right after stating that Jesus humbled himself, right after stating that Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient, right? He became a man and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Paul concludes with the reason Jesus did all this. You know what it is? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. See, I want Sovereign Grace Church to understand that Christ's glory is the goal of our ministry. Because his glory is the goal of God. Christ's glory is the goal of God. Why would we want any other goal but the one that God himself has? I want to go through some passages in Romans that show God's purpose to declare his own glory. And as I do this, I want you to listen for words. Words like revealed, okay, because they demonstrate, right? These are words that show forth something. Talking about his characteristics. Words like revealed or manifested or demonstrated or showed, or made known. All of these point to God's desire to show his character, and they point us to his glory. First, I want to tell you that God declares his glory in his creation. 
He declares his glory in his creation. That is his desire in creating. He creates so that he can show his glory. And the ultimate sin is to exchange the glory of God for the images of man or birds. Listen, verse 18. For the wrath of God of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed. His characteristic of wrath is revealed. His glory is shown from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You hear all these things about God demonstrating and showing and it's perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to become wise or be wise, they became fools. In the Greek, it's morons. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, crea- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see the root of sin there? It's to exchange the glory of God for something else. God declares his glory in his creation. That's his purpose in it. He declares his glory in grace and mercy. In chapter 3, we already read this passage, but I want you to see this again. And think of these demonstrator manifest kinds of words. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God extends grace and mercy to us through Jesus Christ to demonstrate His glory. God declares his glory in his justice or in his righteousness. If you continue on in this passage, verse 25, speaking of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Whom he put forward to satisfy the wrath of God. To be received by faith. This was to what? Show God's Righteousness. You hear that? It was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In the Old Testament time, those people had not yet had their sins atoned for, yet they were forgiven by the grace of God. Why? Because they were looking forward to the grace of God in the Messiah, in Christ. And so Christ, or God, passed over those sins until at which time Christ was crucified. And so God crucified Christ, demonstrating his justice. 
Because someone might say, God, it is unjust for you to let that sin be passed over. And God says, don't fear. I will demonstrate my righteousness or my justice. And I did demonstrate my righteousness and my justice when I crucified my son. He says this, it was to show, verse 26, to show again his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God wants to demonstrate that I can both be a just God and I can justify you, a sinner, and declare you righteous. In spite of the fact that you do not deserve it, all you deserve is wrath. And I can do that by crushing my son. And I do it, why? Preeminently for your sake? Yes, for your sake, but not preeminently. I do it preeminently to demonstrate my righteousness. To show you I'm gracious and merciful and just. Which leads you to this, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. God declares his glory and his love. Look at Romans chapter 5. God declares his glory and his love. He demonstrates his incomparable love for us in the gospel. You guys are so familiar with this passage. I'll just do verse 8. But God does what? Demonstrates his what? Love for us in this. What? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here he does. What does he do when Christ dies? God demonstrates his glory in the characteristic of his love by giving his son while we're still his enemies. That doesn't tell us something wonderful about us. That tells us something incomparably wonderful about him. That's why he does it. God declares his glory in election. Romans chapter 9. Now I'm going to go through this fast, so we won't, because we're going to go through it slow at some point. But Paul is speaking for eight chapters about the gospel. Eight chapters. He's just laying out the gospel. Man sinned. The wrath of God was upon him. God had just turned him over to his sin. And then he sent Christ to die. And you're saved by grace through faith. And he goes through this whole thing gets these, this incredibly high point of all these promises of God that are ours in Christ. And that God would never forsake his promises to us that are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. And he hits this high point in this letter where he makes this statement, there's nothing that can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, he that crushed his own son, how would he not also give us all good things? And he's just hitting this high point of the promises of God. And in Paul, the question jumped up that he thought, probably I think, would jump up among the Jews. Well, wait a minute. You're saying that God makes all these promises and that he's going to keep all these promises. 
and that he won't fail to forget any of them. So why are all the Jews whom he made those promises to so long ago rejecting him? Why is that happening? Isn't that the question the Jew might ask at this point? If God's such a great keeper of his promises, why has he forsaken his people, the Jews? And Paul launches into this, first stating his concern for the Jews. In verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And listen to what belongs to them. And to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Listen to that. Everything belongs to the Jews. They've had every privilege the Israelites have. Every privilege Israel's had. So then the question is, if they've had every privilege, then why are they rejecting the Messiah? Has God's promise failed? Has God's word failed? Is it not trustworthy? Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You hear that statement? It was never, Paul's going to tell you, it was never about physical inheritance of the promises or the covenants. It was always about God's elect, whom are his people by faith. Always. Some of the Israelites are God's elect. They're God's people by faith. Some of them are not. He goes on and explains this. Look what he says, verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. doesn't matter. Physically children of Abraham does not mean you're a child of promise. But, listen, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. His first example is Isaac. Abraham's wife first gives birth to Ishmael. Are all of Ishmael's sons offspring of Abraham? Are they? In the physical sense? Yes. Because Ishmael is the son of Abraham. So all of his children are the physical offspring of Abraham. Isaac is also his child. And all of his children are the physical offspring of Abraham. Yet God says, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. I've chosen Isaac. I set him apart. Of your two sons, Abraham, I chose Isaac. And someone might respond, well, that's a nice example, Paul. But, you know, Isaac and Ishmael, they weren't full brothers because Sarah, you know, wasn't his mom and Hagar was. And so, you know, that's kind of an illegitimate um, child. And so it's no wonder that Ishmael wasn't chosen and Isaac was. And they can try to make that argument. What Paul's trying to establish, it was never about 
the physical descendants of Isaac and Ishmael. It was always about God's choice of Isaac. People can come back and say, well, that's not true because what about Hagar, etc. So Paul goes down and continues his examples. And by the way, in verse 9, he continues this one, and he says, For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I'll return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, now he goes to the next example, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. I want to make it clear to you, Paul says, that even Rebekah had conceived children, and those children came by one man, Isaac. There weren't two different fathers or two different mothers or anything else. There was one man and one woman. One son who is the son of the promise, Isaac, who had these two children through Rebekah. And not only that, look down here. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born. So not only that, but you might say, well, but you know, I know she had two children and one was chosen and the other one wasn't. But you know, they were from different parents. No, that's not a problem. Well, you know, God saw their life and then decided, no, they weren't even born. There's no objection there. Had not yet been born. Goes on. And had done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Listen to what God says here, or Paul says, on behalf of the Holy Spirit here. God chose Jacob in the womb, a twin. The younger son, by the way, not the firstborn. Esau came out first. He chose him. Jacob had every possible disadvantage of being the chosen one in that regard. And really, at the end of the day, there isn't any real difference that you can establish between Jacob and Esau on a human level that would make you say, God chose Jacob because of this and God chose Esau because of this. No, he says why he chose Jacob and not Esau. In order that his purpose in what? Election might stand. Not because of works, and we would say, but because of faith, right? No, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. And you might say, well, isn't it not because of works, but by faith that we're saved? Yes. When we are talking about justification, the declaration of your righteousness before God, your salvation, when we were talking about that, you were saved by faith alone, not by works. When we are talking about election or God's sovereign purpose, then it is by his call, not by our works. Not by our faith. And Paul makes that very clear here. And he goes on because the thought that comes to our mind is, that seems so unjust. Right? Why would he do that? Seems so unjust. And he goes on in verse 14 and says then this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Listen, when your question that comes because of your reading the text is the same question that Paul asks or expects you to ask upon your reading of the text, you know you're getting a good exegesis of the passage. Because if it was by faith 
on the part of Jacob and rejection on the part of Esau, no one would say, is there injustice on the part of God? No one. Everyone would go, that's fair. Jacob chose and Esau rejected. That's fair. I don't need to ask the question, is there injustice on the part of God? But he's, no, it was very clearly, is there injustice on the part of God? That's the question that springs to your mind. And he says, by no means, which is a very dissatisfying answer for most of us. And he goes on, he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, why was Pharaoh raised up? Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that I'm, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I raised you up, Pharaoh, so I could send Moses to call my people out so that you would reject them and so that I could send the plagues on your land and you would send the people out and everyone would know that I'm God. I would demonstrate my glory and my name would be known across the earth. So then he has mercy, verse 18, on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, You ready for the next question? If I'm born this way, if I'm conceived in sin, I'm born in sin, and then God chooses not to offer me mercy, and by the way, I don't mean offer like the universal offer of mercy to all people who, you know, will repent, but God chooses not to sovereignly regenerate me so that I might respond in faith, then how can he blame me? He hardens whom he wants. He softens whom he wants. If he has compassion on whom he wants, and justice on whom he wants, how could he ever blame me? You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul's answer is one that we're going, okay, give us the answer, Paul. What is it? And here it is. But who are you O man, to answer back to God. Just a smack right in the face of me, who so often does not trust the sovereign hand and will of God, who so often is not willing to accept what he reveals of himself here and to deal with the tensions that I see. And one of the biggest tensions that I see is that he commands me to believe lest I perish eternally. And then at the same time tells me I will not believe unless he's chosen me to. And my response to that is, how am I supposed to work that out in my pea brain? You must be unjust, God, because that doesn't make sense to me. How can you blame me in this? God. And God's response? Who are you to talk back to God? Who are you? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Now let's get to the point of all this. Why does he elect? Why does he elect? Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, two of his attributes, he wants to show his wrath, declare his glory, and his power, has endured with much patience, has endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? Why would God allow men to be born and live on this earth in this sinful condition and call them to repentance and faith and not enable them to do it and bear with them in patience these vessels prepared for destruction? Why would he do that? So he can show his power and his justice and his wrath? Yes. But most preeminently, he does it for this reason. Look at verse 23. He does it in order to make known the riches of his glory. For vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God does everything. From creation to showing his love, his incomparable love, his incomparable grace and mercy and justice and righteousness, his redemption of the creation in Romans chapter 8, and his election of men to salvation, his gracious election taking us out of our sinful, stubborn, cold, dead heart, you know, dead-hearted response to him, taking us out of that, regenerates. He does it all for his own glory. That is the driving passion of God. And that's the passion of Paul. And it ought to be the passion of the church. We need to understand that God does everything he does for us for his glory. He does it for his own namesake. God has inextricably tied together his work among us and the glory of his own name. Inextricably tied those two things together, his work among us and the glory of his own name. We must understand and proclaim this or else we miss the point. Completely miss it. Listen to why God saved his people from Babylon. The Jews had been Exiled to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire had come on and captured them and they'd been exiled and God decided to save his people. And and here's why he does it. There's the same reason he saves us, by the way. Here's this quote from Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
when we think the church exists for any other reason than to declare the glory of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, we are not just in some minor sin. We are in a grievous sin. We have reached the point of a church when we think the church exists for some other point than that. We have reached that point in the life of the church where we have forsaken the glory of God and exchanged it for something else. And that is the gravest sin the church could walk into. Our purpose as a church is to desire and yearn for and weep for and pray for and work for and sacrificially give for and to die for the cause of seeing Christ's name proclaimed in all the earth. It's our purpose. There are thousands, thousands of people groups who've never heard his name. Thousands. They're mostly in the 1040 window, i.e. the Middle East, China, India, and all those other places none of us ever want to go. Billions of unbelievers that don't yet worship him. Billions. Millions of professing believers who are using his name in vain because they believe that the primary motivation of the gospel is not the glory of Jesus and their churches are dragged into being centers that accommodate and celebrate men rather than houses of humble, repentant, and joyful worship of the glory of Christ. So how should we respond to all this? I think it's summed up best with this final quote from John Stott. He says this, and I want to conclude with this. If therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous, jealous for the honor of his name. Troubled. You hear that? Troubled when it remains unknown. Does it trouble you that God's name is not known among thousands of people groups? Does it disturb your soul deeply? It should. Hurt when it is ignored. Indignant when it is blasphemed. And all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which is due it. Let's pray. Lord, we, we know that you have so clearly declared your glory in all things. You've declared it in your creation. Lord, you declare it in redemption. Lord, you will declare it when you ultimately consummate your kingdom at the end of all things. Make us people that are about your name. Let us be people who are disturbed, troubled, that your name is not proclaimed in all the nations. Let us be people that are saddened 
there are people who do not know you, who have not heard of you. Let us be indignant when your name is blasphemed. Lord, let us be anxious always that your name is given the glory, the honor that is due it. For your name, for your sake, and your glory, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.